Father, as we open your word, we need the Holy Spirit to open our hearts to the truths here. We, um, your kingdom is everything because it's yours, and we need to be rightly related to it. We need to understand it, so we ask for your help. So we look at these wonderful passages this morning in Christ's name, amen. Well, the whole Bible is really the story of a kingdom. Uh, I guess we should say the kingdom. I mean, the kingdom of God is a natural consequence of the first verse in the Bible, which shapes all of Mel Abel's theology. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And God is the creator of everything that exists outside of himself. Yeah. And it's his. So he made it out of nothing. The, the design of it is his. The incredible balance of what science calls the forces of nature. He invented all that. That delicate interplay between light and water in the biological realm. That's all his design. He designed all of it. It's his he designed human beings, the most unique and remarkable creatures of the earth. The only, only human beings can reason. Have you ever noticed that? The most unique quality. Only we can create, like he does, new things from our imaginations. Only human beings are moral. Unlike all other creatures, we think and we feel in terms of right and wrong. We have a conscience. So in these marvelous ways and in many others, we are made in the image of God, the Bible says. In those ways, we are like him. Though our powers are very small and very limited, they are like his in those things that he gave us, which raises us above all other creatures of the earth. And because all of that is true and because God is the infinite personal creator, there is by, by virtue of his infinite superiority and his ownership of what he has made, there's a natural authority that he has over all things. I, I can't think of a better description than to say that God rules his creation. That makes him a king. And what he has made is his kingdom. So when we're talking about the kingdom, it's really tied all the way back to the very beginning of creation. The Psalms are full of worship to God as the king of all. Psalm 47, 6, it says, sing praises to God, sing praises. Sing praises to our king. Sing praises. For God is the king of all the earth. Sing praises with a skillful psalm. God reigns over the nations. God sits on his holy throne. So he really is the only one true authority in the world. And what he has made is his kingdom. He's the highest authority on heaven and on earth. But you've probably observed that the world takes little notice of God's authority. Have you noticed that? The way people talk, the way they behave. Men have departed from him, forging their own paths, uh, creating their own gods. That's how we misuse our imagination. We create our own gods in his place. We invent our own morality instead of adopt his. What he says is right and wrong is not what we're gonna say is right and wrong. Sometimes they overlap, but not when it interferes with our pleasures. Men have made kings to eclipse him, to replace him from their minds, and they've redirected their allegiance. And that happened at a certain point in time when the first humans were tempted 
by a fallen spirit, a fallen angel, a self-declared enemy of God. The fundamental evil about Satan is that he doesn't want to serve. That's the main thing about him. And that became the fundamental evil of human beings. That's our great sin, rooted in a gross, unworthy disrespect of a holy, good, and infinitely wise creator. We just don't care about him. It's the height of foolishness, and the Bible says it's a sin worthy of death. So this special world God made, teeming with life and reflecting his glory, has become a fallen world, a, a lost world, a cursed world. And you see it's glory, but it's a faded glory. It's messed up, it's corrupted. It's a world in rebellion against its king, and his king has put a curse on it so that we can be aware that it's not right. The creation is cursed so that we creatures of imagination and wisdom and understanding can, can look at that and go, there's something wrong. There's a lot wrong. What's the cause of that wrong? And so we go chasing off all kinds of answers, but God tells us what the wrong is. It's us. It's a famous story about a British magazine that, a very well-known magazine that published an article called What's Wrong with the World? And I think it was G.K. Chesterton, but he wrote in... In regard to your recent article, What's Wrong with the World, I am. <laughs> and that's the right attitude to take because that is what's wrong with the world. We are. We are. Of course, at any moment, God could um, crash in to our world with an army of angels and slay all the wicked and return to the world to a paradise. But that would only show one side of God, one aspect of the glory of God, the greatness of God. The grand theme of the kingdom of God is reconquest. He's going to reconquer this world for himself. And boy, when you think about that, the layers of greatness and glory in God, it just is astounding. But he's not going to come crashing in right away. And he hasn't done that, has he? He could display his justice and his holiness and his righteousness in ending all this mess that we've made out of his good world. At any moment he could do that. But there's much more to God and so in the reconquest of earth, God is showing many other qualities that he has, more wondrous, more wondrous, and, and in many ways, way more quiet. I mean, when the angels come, it's not gonna be quiet. God displays his love in the way he has chosen to work his kingdom in the world at the present time, awaiting the day when the reconquest will be loud and abrupt and direct and powerful. But right now, his love and his mercy are exalted as much as his holiness and for the recipients of that mercy, like me and hopefully you, eternal joy and thanksgiving are going to be the result of that. So God personally comes to earth in Jesus Christ, a man who walks among us, who's one of us and yet so extraordinarily different from us in all of his goodness. And he comes as a man to bring the truth, but much more than that, to bring redemption 
Now redeem has a very specific meaning. It means you pay a price and you set something free. It's like the only, the only modern version I can think of is a pawn shop. You take something there and you pawn it and you get a redemption ticket. And when you can come back and get it if you get the money and you can pay the price and get it out of hawk, you've redeemed whatever you put in there. When you're talking about human beings, which is where the word comes from in the scripture, because there was a slave society, somebody pays a price and buys somebody's freedom. And the Christ, Christ paid the price of our sin to buy our freedom from the judgment of a holy and righteous God. That's an amazing thing. And in that way, God displays his love and his mercy. So Jesus lives in this world at a certain time. He is cruelly murdered by men. The ultimate act of rebellion against God is to murder his son. He's buried, he rises again, he sends his disciples out into the world with this message of love and forgiveness which we're still carrying on today. And he returns to heaven and he's gonna come back again at the head of an angelic army as we keep reading in Matthew, he's gonna talk about that. But the word of redemption first goes out to all peoples in the world because God has a plan to populate heaven with people from every language, tribe, tongue, and nation. It's gonna be a wonderful diverse variety of folks up there. So in Matthew 13, Jesus is about halfway through his ministry. Rejection is increasing, and he starts teaching in parables, and we learned earlier, uh, a couple weeks ago, he specifically says he's doing it to hide the truth from some people and grant a deeper understanding of the truth to other people. And there's seven kingdom parables. Jesus has all kinds of parables, but some of them explain his kingdom. And that's what Matthew 13 parables. There's seven kingdom parables here. And we've already looked at two, two long ones, the parable of the soils. And last week we talked about the parable of the wheat and the tares, right? And what's wonderful about these long parables is the fact that the disciples ask Jesus what they mean and he explains them. So we can go, oh, okay, good. Now I get it, right? So most parables, most parables really have one main idea. But in the parable of the wheat and tares, it's got one main idea, which is that God has an enemy who's sowing his people in amongst us. But there are seven images in that one parable that represent real things in the world. The sower is Christ, the field is the world, the good seed are the sons of the kingdom, the tares in that one are the sons of the evil one. The enemy is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age. The reapers of the harvest are the angels. I mean, he goes through that whole thing. He explains it in great detail. That parable, which is in verse 24 through 30 here, last week we, we jumped down to verse 36 through 40 because that's where he explains that parable. And did you notice something? We, when I say we jumped down, we had to jump because we skipped two parables to get to the explanation. Two really short parables, way shorter than the other ones. So we're going to talk about those two this morning. But there's a problem with these two. There's a really bad problem. Jesus doesn't explain them. Or if he did explain them, Matthew didn't bother to record the explanation. So the apostles, they asked about the wheat and the tear parable, but not about the two short ones that are in verse 31 through 30. So guess which parables have the most controversy in how to interpret them? <laughs> yeah, the ones that he didn't explain, right? These two, and they're really short. So let's look at them. Uh, verse 31, 
he presented another parable to them saying, the kingdom of heaven is like, that's how you know it's a kingdom parable, he starts that way. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and sowed in his field, and this is smaller than all the other seeds, and when it is full grown, it is larger than the garden plants and becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air come and nest in its branches. What does that mean? Verse 33, he spoke another parable to them. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven, which a woman took and hid in three pecks of flour until it was all leavened. What does that mean? Well, there's two major views of these parables, and they're completely opposite from one another. So we're gonna do a little Bible study in parables today, and I don't actually have a clear answer, but I'll tell you what I think. The traditional view is that these parables are describing the growth of the kingdom, and that's all they're doing, the positive growth of the kingdom. Another very common but more recent view of these parables is that they're taking the idea of the wheat and the tares, so the wheat is the the sons of the kingdom, and the tares are the sons of the evil one, and the sons of the evil one are planted by the enemy amidst the sons of the kingdom and tries to wreck everything, that that's, it's following up on that idea and it said the negative influence that the, king, the kingdom is under, coming under satanic attack. And these two interpretations are almost exactly the opposite. The one thing they agree on is that the kingdom starts small and it grows. But other than that, um, we really have to work through it. So who's right about that? Which way should we view that? So the kingdom, is, it's growing or is it growing and under attack by the enemy? What, are they, what do these parables mean? Let me kind of give you the arguments for both views. And I got it, this is what makes it hard. Both sides of this, usually you can tell, you can weigh these arguments, people interpret the Bible all the time, you know, you meet all kinds of people that have all these wild interpretations. Usually if you just pay really close attention to the context and you really think it through, it's pretty clear what the Bible's saying, almost all the time. But in this argument, whether it's a positive parable or a negative parable is both sides pay really close attention to the immediate context. Both views of this use scripture well. Sometimes people throw in scriptures that don't belong in interpreting something. But they both really think it through, they use it well to support their points. Both sides make really good sense of, according to history, how this actually plays out. So, so let's just skip to the treasure parable in 44 and just forget about these. No, we're not gonna skip them, I'm just kidding. We're not gonna do that. But it it is my sacred duty to cover every text. So we're gonna talk about these. I'm gonna lay out the main arguments and you can decide for yourself what's right. Let's look at the negative view first. The negative view is that these two parables reinforce the idea of an evil influence always trying to corrupt or take down the kingdom of God, which is the point in the parable of the wheat and the tares. So they would say, look at the context. So you have these these two brief parables are tucked, where are they put in Matthew's order? Well, Jesus tells the parable of the wheat and the tares, then you have these two short parables, then you have this very full explanation of the parable of the wheat and the tares. They're saying, why would that be put right there between the parable and the explanation? Because they must be reaffirming the same basic truth. That's a pretty good argument, actually. It's logical to group them under that main idea. Then look at the details, verse 32. The birds of the air, they come and they nest in the branches of the mustard tree, right? Where have we met birds before in this chapter? 
well, Matthew chapter 13, verse 4, and in verse 19 where it's explained, the birds come in the parable of the soils, right? They come and they eat the good seed that's fallen by the hard road, and the seed is God's word, and they take the seed away. And Jesus explains it like this in verse 19. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. So the birds represent the activity of who? The evil one, right? They're representing what Satan wants to do. Take God's word out of your heart. And the parable of the wheat and tares. The main idea is that Satan is the enemy who sows tares in God's field. So birds, tares, comes right after the tares. That all fits together. That, that must mean that this is a, the, the birds represent evil coming into the kingdom. And then you got the second short parable. It's about leaven. You know what leaven is, right? And you bakers know, I know. So you put leaven in the um, dough you're going to be using, and that's what makes the bread rise. It permeates the bread. And so if you have unleavened bread, it's like a cracker. If you have leavened bread, it's puffier, right? That's the whole idea there. Leaven is very often, very often used in the Old Testament negatively. It represents corruption. And technically, it is a kind of a corruption. It represents sin. In the Law of Moses, uh, which is a, a major feast, is the feast of what? unleavened bread, right? Well, you have a whole feast dedicated to unleavened bread. Exodus 13, 6, for seven days you shall eat unleavened bread, and on the seventh day there shall be a feast to the Lord. Unleavened bread shall be eaten throughout the seven days, and nothing leavened shall be seen among you, nor any leaven be seen among you, and all your borders. They were supposed to take the, clean the whole house out of any kind of leaven, anything that would work as leaven. As a representation, it was supposed to be a symbol to them of cleaning your house of sin, right? Because leaven represented that. Leviticus chapter 2, verse 11 regarding the grain offering in the temple. No grain offering which you bring to the Lord shall be made with leaven. For you shall not offer up in smoke any leaven or any honey as an offering by fire to the Lord. And not only that, but when, if you get to Matthew chapter 16 and verse 6, Jesus says, watch out and beware of the leaven of the scribes and the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Why would he use the word leaven? Because it's negative what they're bringing, right? It's something dark. Paul, Galatians chapter 5 verse 9, the Galatians, the Galatians were being tripped over, up over the gospel and what it was. And Paul says to them, he warns them and he says, a little leaven leavens the whole lump, right? Permeates everything. He says, don't, don't go a little bit off because it's going to start making everything go off, right? Pretty consistent there. And finally, they would say, people have this negative view, they'd say, it just fits what actually happened and continues to happen. The church started small and grew and it's always being attacked, always being attacked in every generation by schismatics, heretics, um, wicked people from within, all kinds of ugly things, and uh, it's always being pulled off track, which is true. So it fits. So picture the mustard seed parable, the image of a large structure with multiple branches that grew from very tiny beginnings and became infested with moral and theological problems, the birds, which is an accurate prophetic picture of the church. I mean, that works, doesn't it? And so many people take that interpretation. There you go. So what can those who view the par parables positively, how could they respond? What would they say in response to that? Well, they would say things like this. Parables stand on their own, and the images in them stand on their own. And just because a symbol means something in one parable doesn't necessarily mean that symbol means something 
in another parable. Doesn't have to do that. Birds are not always evil in biblical symbolism. In fact, there's a very significant prophecy about the Messiah in Ezekiel. And he presents this exalted portrait of the Messiah. It's really kind of a wonderful passage. It's not well known. But um, he pictures the Messiah as a sprig taken from the top of a great cedar tree and then planted on a very high mountain of Israel. In fact, here it is. It's Ezekiel 17.23. On the high mountain of Israel, the Lord speaking, I will plant it that it may bring forth boughs and bear fruit and become a stately cedar. So a Lebanese cedar is taken to Israel, planted on the high mountain, and it grows into a great, great tree, and it's got vast branches, and it says, and birds of every kind will nest under it, and they will nest in the shade of its branches. And plainly what Ezekiel's talking about there is as Messiah becomes great, many peoples will come and find rest and peace in him. Peoples beyond the borders of Israel, Gentiles, which is a common theme in the messianic prophecies of the Old Testament. And Jesus might have very well had that prophecy in mind when he's talking about this mustard seed parable where the birds of the air come and nest in its branches. So what started out like really small in Israel, a tiny seed. You ever seen a mustard seed? Anybody ever seen one? If you look at your Bible and find a period after the end of a sentence, that's about the size of a mustard seed. And it doesn't grow into a real tree, but it does grow into a very large plant in a, for a garden. It's like 12, 15 feet high if it really gets going. And birds do come and nest in its branches. So Jesus is saying that very absolute, t- yes, you have gigantic trees, but they come from pretty good sized seeds, you know. But the mustard seed is so tiny, it's almost invisible, and, and yet it grows into this very large tree, and the birds come and they nest there. So in Ezekiel, the birds represent Gentile peoples finding peace and security and safety there. And so Jesus could have very well had that in mind, these people would say, when he's saying this parable. He could have had that prophecy from Ezekiel in mind. Not only that, um, this whole idea of nesting is a really positive word, not a negative word. Nesting suggests peace and security. Daniel chapter 4, verse 12. He has that, that dream, the king of Babylon, you know. Nebuchadnezzar um, dreams of this great tree, and what happens with the great tree? Birds of the air come and they nest in its branches. It's exactly the same idea. Again, a very clear picture of peace and security under this great ruler there, which also would maybe relate to the idea in the mustard tree here. So the tree is the kingdom of God. It starts really tiny, but it grows very large for such a small beginning, and it brings peace and rest to those who inhabit it. That could be what the parable means. That was a positive view of what the parable means. So generally, parables have one meaning. You don't want to find details in there that just start reading things into it. Even very lengthy and complex parables that use a lot of different word pictures, like the wheat and the tares parable, it really has one meaning. The parable of the soils is about the condition of the heart of everyone that hears the word of God. There's four different possible reactions, but that's the one idea. The parable of the mustard tree um, then is about something, would be in the positive view of something very small, like the early church becoming something really large. So the... um, so large it encompasses the Gentiles as well. Remember what Jesus said about his ministry? Who did he come to? I've come to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. So his ministry stayed in Israel. But after his resurrection and he sends the disciples out, 
Gentiles are included in coming in. The gospel goes everywhere, right? So the kingdom of God starts really tiny. It grows way bigger than you would expect from its tiny little beginnings, and others are included and join into it. It's a very po- that, that fits history as well, because that is what really happened. So the church started tiny, grew quickly, and a lot of Gentiles found rest in it. And in the context of Matthew 13, that would be an appropriate thing to be revealed. Remember, the common expectation of the kingdom of the Messiah was that it would come crashing in with sword and fire and the Messiah would be an earthly political ruler and he'd make a new world, a righteous world in which God would be exalted and all the wicked would be punished. But this parable is teaching something really small, a mustard seed, the smallest thing you can imagine, growing into a place of safety and security for the lost. So the cataclysmic powerhouse crashing in of the kingdom of God is going to happen. But the saving work of the Messiah happens first where people find rest in him. In fact, it's in Matthew chapter 11 at the end where Jesus invites people to come and find rest, right? He says he gives rest. Os Guinness, the uh, theologian, said it this way. Jesus made clear that the kingdom of God is organic and not organizational. It grows like a seed, and it works like leaven, secretly, invisibly, surprisingly, and irresistibly. And that's how, that's, that would be the idea there with the mustard seed growing into the plant. Now, we should talk about leaven as well, because leaven is always evil, right? It, it, it often is a symbol of evil, but it's also in those situations, it's always identified as a symbol of evil. It isn't defined as evil in this parable, and it's not always bad in the Old Testament either. In fact, uh, it was a helpful symbol of the pervasive nature of sin. And then there's the Feast of the Unleavened Bread. But you know there's another feast. There were seven major feasts in Israel. There's the Feast of First Fruits. And in the Feast of First Fruits was about offering to God the first of the harvest to thank him for the harvest and the bounty that he provided. And the offering was not with unleavened bread. So if you keep reading in Leviticus and you get to chapter 23 where it talks about that feast, it says, you shall bring in from your dwelling places two loaves of bread for a wave offering made of two-tenths of an ephah and they shall be of fine flour baked with leaven as first fruits to the Lord. So there's an example of leaven being used in a positive way in worship. So it's not always negative. That's why immediate context is really important. So it's not inherently evil, Um, symbols from life like seeds or leaven, they have to be interpreted in the immediate context. It's not uncommon for the same symbol to be used of very different things. In the book of Revelation, Jesus is described as a lion, right? The, The lion of Judah. Who else is described as a lion in the Bible? Yeah, Satan's like a lion, right? Seeking whom he, waiting for to pounce and seeking someone. So Christ and Satan are both described as a lion. Satan is very often referred to as a serpent. So he's a serpent in the Garden of Eden. He's a great serpent in the book of Revelation. He's a snake. He's a, and uh, that's a really negative symbol there. It's almost always him. But then you go to the, when the people of Israel were being bit by all the serpents and they made, God told Moses, he said, make a serpent of bronze and put it on a stick and raise it up real high. And when people look at it, they'll be healed of their snake bite. And Jesus said, as the serpent was, bronze serpent was raised in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be raised up, right? So suddenly that image became a, a, a symbol of him, too. 
a serpent. So it just depends on what it means in the given context. They're just symbols. They're not, they're not inherently evil or good or anything like that. So you never know. Back in Matthew 10, Jesus told the disciples to be as shrewd as serpents and innocent as dove. Be like a serpent. Wise, shrewd, but innocent. So context determines meaning if meaning is not spelled out, even for things like serpents and leaven. So is there a way to see the parable of leaven positively in the immediate context? Absolutely. What contribution would the idea of leaven make to revealing the mystery of the kingdom of God? So the mustard seed is really tiny beginnings and it expands and grows. What would the idea of leaven mean? Well, it works quietly, right? It's permeating everything. It's going to permeate until its work is all done. So leaven would be the reign of God as king being introduced into human lives. That's the woman putting the little bit of leaven in the kind of meal there. God puts his word in our hearts, the kingdom of God, and through the spoken word or the written word, like the woman adds it to the meal. And then once it's implanted, it has this transforming power that works from within until that changed life becomes visible from the outside, just like you can watch bread rise in that kind of a way. So more and more people, as they receive the word implanted, they each change and they start following the king and they come together as communities of kingdom citizens. We call those churches. And they have a positive impact in the world for the king. So that their leaven, it, it grows and impacts the world everywhere. So I think that those um, that view the parable of the leaven positively would also say to the people that view it negatively, well, are you saying that this corruption completely takes over the church? Because that's what leaven does. It takes over everything. And I think they wouldn't want to say that. So the positive view of the parable would say, look at how it flows. You got the parable of the four soils how the kingdom is spread and how it's received. You have the wheat and the tares. The enemy of the kingdom is trying to corrupt it. You have the mustard seed, the spread of the kingdom from very tiny beginnings into the whole world, growing and encompassing the Gentiles. That's how extensive the kingdom is. And then the leaven and how it works inside of people, and that's how intensive the, the leaven, the kingdom of God is as it changes people. So these two parables about the kingdom. Are they about Satan attacking or are they about the kingdom's growth? Which is right? Take your pick. (laughs) Like I said, there's good arguments on both sides. I fall on the positive side because I think that actually works out better. makes more sense to me. But if you disagree, you are in great company because many people do. Lots of good people do. So take your pick. But let me take just some, offer some practical thoughts now. I had to do that as a Bible study, okay? Now let's talk about what it all kind of means for us today. Whether, it doesn't really matter which view you take of it. But God started implementing his kingdom program of redemption through one person, the Lord Jesus Christ, right? One person out of all the millions and millions of people in the world using really small beginnings. That's not new for God to do that. He started the nation of Israel with one person, right? Abraham, if you want to count Sarah, you could say two persons. Very small beginnings, the kingdom, which, the kingdom which is going to come, but uh, during this time between the first coming of Christ and the second coming of Christ, the time of the church where the Jew and the Gentile are together in one body, the kingdom is founded on one man, the Lord. And then his disciples that he chose, which spreads it out just a little bit, 
And it's so insignificant. It's almost nothing. It's not noticeable. The world would never have paid attention to it. The Lord Jesus came as an obscure man. Nobody knew about him. A carpenter's son in a remote Roman province on the far edge of the empire. Hardly the place for a man of influence to begin his life. And he stayed there his whole life. He never left. Except once as a baby, they took him to Egypt and then he came back. But uh, that was it. His entire ministry was focused in this one place, very obscure place. And you know, there were Caesars and senators and kings of the first century. How many of their names do you know? How many of their names do you know not related to Jesus' story? Not very many. They're, they're unknown. They're lost to history. Only history buffs know who they are. And yet today, all over the world, this morning, people are worshiping Jesus Christ. His, his name is on their lips, and he's worshiped by untold millions of people. He is still working that kingdom growth. It's still intensively and extensively growing. He's still humbling people. He's still calling men and women into his service. He's still leading people on the narrow path of righteousness. It's going on and on and on. And some he's raising up to be world changers and he may be chastising others uh, until they remember that he is the source of all good things but he's doing that too for their benefit and he deserves our, our deepest and most earnest affection and loyalty and love. And each time a heart is stirred to follow him it's the Spirit of God working in that person's heart extensively and intensively extending the kingdom to more and more people and in greater and greater ways all the time. Who were these people? Who are these people that changed the world? Well, way back in the first century, Paul called them, 1 Corinthians 1.26, consider your calling, brethren. You were called. God called you. Consider it. Think about it. That there were not many wise, according to the flesh, not many mighty not many noble, right? It's people just like that through them that the gospel moved forward and became this incredible force throughout the world, doing good through the whole world and taking the message of God's love to country after country and people after people. The kingdom advances. Why? Well, Paul goes on in 1 Corinthians 1.27, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the strong. And the base things of the world and the despised, God has chosen the things that are not so that he may nullify the things that are so that no man may boast before God. By his doing, you are in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption so that... Just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Why does God use weak, base, simple people? Because it glorifies him. If we were the most wonderful people in the world, the most intelligent, the most erudite, the, most, the, the richest, the most powerful, then we'd say, well, it was human power that did all this stuff. But when God uses people like us, everyday people, his power is magnified. He's, he is this incredible force for good in the world through regular people like you and me. It's an amazing thing. God loves to glorify himself by using ordinary people. He chooses them. 
He chooses them out of all people. And you are actually, uh, it says not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble. He says not many wise according to the flesh. There are some great learned Christians that are there, but not many. But you are wiser than the great men of this age if you know and love and practice God's word. Because you're way wiser than the world. Look where the world's going. It's insane. It's out of control madness. And if you just have God's word, you're much wiser than the world. So you're not wise in their eyes, not according to the flesh, it says. Well, what degrees do you have? Um, That's not the point. God is working in his simple people. And God can accomplish things of great significance, eternal significance through you that the great men of the world will never even notice or pay any attention to because God has saved you. How does that song put it that we sang last week? He saved a wretch like me, right? Amazing grace. God loves to redeem and transform and use wretched people. Anybody volunteer to be a wretch? I, 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 I am one. I was listening to an interview this week. Um, this guy, uh, never heard of him until this week, and all of a sudden he's popping up everywhere. His name is Mez. How many people are named Mez? Mez McConnell. He was being interviewed by um, Marvin Olasky at um, Patrick Henry College. And, and it's funny because a friend of mine was just at a conference with Mez speaking in L.A. yesterday. So Mez was here, and I, I just happened to read this interview with him. He's the senior pastor of Nidri Community Church in Edinburgh, Scotland. He's Scottish. He's been there 11 years, and during that time, he's overseen the planting of six other churches in 11 years. And he's, um, he's got a pretty interesting background, this guy. He looks like a wretch, and he, he, uh, he is a wretch. He calls himself one. He had a really hard life, and he made the worst of it, too. His mother abandoned him when he was two years old. His stepmother was extremely abusive and violent. At age 12, he was convicted of assaulting an elderly couple. At age 16, when he was homeless and doing drugs all the time, he stabbed two people in a nightclub, and he went to prison. And then these Christians visited the prison and were um, sharing the gospel with the prisoners and bringing them uh, little snacks and uh, tobacco, he said. He goes, I don't know why they were bringing me tobacco, but because um, he knew they would like that probably. But they were visiting him. And, he, and when he got out, he, he lived with one of them. And he started going to church and Bible study and stuff, and he says, I didn't get it at all, what they were doing. It was the weirdest thing to me. It was like, just sat there and like, what are you talking about? It was like a whole nother world. But in this house, he found, the house where this guy he was staying in, he found a, a, a um, copies of Matthew Henry's commentaries. Now, I don't know if you know Matthew Henry's commentaries. Matthew Henry would like lived in the days of the Puritans, okay? It's pretty dense prose. We've got several editions of that over on the church property if you ever want to read it. But um, uh, huge volumes. And it's got the Bible along the top and then his comments on the Bible all through the bottom. And he read the whole thing. So here's this punk kid, this Scottish kid getting out of prison and he doesn't get anything that's going on at church but he's reading some ancient Puritan. You know? And Olasky asked him in the interview, he says, uh, I'm, I'm sorry, he asked him about that, and he says, I heard you read Matthew Henry. And he goes, quote, this is what he said, have you ever seen one of those bad boys? <laughs> because it's like the whole set's like that. It's on the whole Bible, you know? 
It's a commentary on the whole Bible. And he read the whole thing. He read the whole thing. Said it took him months. So this 21st century punk with very little education is reading this huge Puritan commentary in the Bible and he was captivated by it. He said, quote, I just thought I'll read this thing, right? I read it from start to finish. Took me a couple of months, but I read it. And Olasky says, any particular part get to you? He says, quote, I got converted reading the book of Romans. That's a cheeky book to get converted by, right? Romans just resonated with me because I've been taught lies my entire life, largely by social workers and drug counselors. They just lied to me blatantly. He goes, well, what were the most common lies? The biggest lie, that I wasn't really a bad person. I was a good guy who had a terrible upbringing, a terrible abusive childhood. I was a product of my environment. Then Alaski says, they're saying you're not responsible. And he says, exactly, I'm a victim. But Paul says, no, you need to take responsibility for yourself, for your actions. Boo-hoo, you had a tough childhood. But you're a sinner standing in front of a holy God and there's no excuse for your sin, regardless of how people mistreated you. And then Alaski says, well, the hymn Amazing Grace has that famous line, saved a wretch like me. Some people in the United States say, oh, we don't like to say wretch, and they've changed the words to the hymn to save someone like me. But you had the understanding that you're a wretch. And then Mez says, people who don't like the word wretch are wretches too. <laughs> Aren't they? And then he goes, simple as that. So Alaski says, how do they come to understand that they are wretches also? How, do they, how are you going to get them to come to understand that? And he says, you just tell them, Doc. Maybe they dress nicely. Some nicely dressed rich people are the most duplicitous people on the planet. It's, it's a really interesting interview. It's like an hour long. But um, anyway, like I said, he just spoke here in L.A. yesterday at, at, a, at a conference for pastors in the inner city. It's called um, Pastors in Hard Places, something like that. Because he, he works with the really rough people in, in Scotland there. And he's right, of course, about all... Now, look, I would never minimize the horrors of abuse, but he's speaking from a position of authority in that. I, I think this guy, Mez, really did get sent, sent down a terrible path in life and self-destruction and violence because of his horrible upbringing. But he's entirely right about what the Bible says. And there's no justification for bad behavior because of the way you were raised. The Bible says very plainly, Psalm 14, the Lord has looked down from heaven upon the sons of men to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. That's God's take on humanity. There's no good people. So yeah, it's true. Certain kinds of destructive behavior certainly may be a response to abuse. But the reason that people who are wronged often end up perpetuating evil on other people. It's just another manifestation of the fact that we're all sinners and we're profoundly messed up. I mean, and we are gonna stand before a holy God. If, you would, if, you, if you've been horribly abused, and you wouldn't, if you were good, you wouldn't abuse others. You'd say, I know what it's like to be abused. I would never hurt anybody else ever in any way, shape, or form. If you were good, but if you're a sinner, you say, I'm gonna take it out on somebody else. So being a victim of cruelty or abuse is not a justification for our own evil acts. Now God might use it for our good if our response to evil against us reveals that we have serious sin issues in ourselves, which is exactly what he learned by reading Matthew Henry, of all things, and the book of Romans. So we're not absolved of sin by being wronged, 
We're only washed clean by the blood of Christ, shed for sin. The love of God for wretches like me and like you, that's what heals us. Not pretending like we're really good after all. And I shared Mez's story because it shows how the kingdom of God just keeps marching on. Not many wise, not many noble. It marches on by the gracious actions of God in people's life. All sorts of people. People written off by society. Not many wise according to the flesh. Not many mighty. Not many noble. God's kingdom will advance in ways that brings Him glory. And that's not the world's path of I did this or I achieved that. That's not the way. God is glorified when wretched creatures become rightly related to him and love him as the sovereign creator and judge of the world. And that means coming on your knees, right? Seeking his mercy. That's the only way. Christ paid the price for sin, my sin. He had to die our death because before God... Death was all we could expect from him, being wretches. The wages of sin is death. That's what the Bible says. And we have greedily earned our wages. But God entered human flesh to take that burden off of us, to pay our debt to divine justice, to take our guilt himself on, in his body. And that's why we come to him. That's why we come to him this morning, for mercy, and, that, and that's how he adopts us into his family and makes kingdom citizens out of wretched people. So be a good citizen of a great and powerful and merciful king because that's who we worship. Let's pray. Our Father, how great you are in creativity, in power, in justice, in goodness. Holy and righteous are you. We tremble before your goodness for we are not good but you began your kingdom here with love the reconquest is all about mercy being extended to wretched people a kingdom of renewed men and women purchased with blood welcomed and adopted by you for your glory we will sing of that love that you have for us we'll sing of it forever We pray in Christ's name, amen.